There's an elephant in the room. It's nonpartisan. Couldn't do this series this time next year with a big elephant right behind me. The elephant in the room is an image for those things that everybody knows is around, is there, that needs to be talked about, but no one's saying anything about. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about five conversations that you and I tend to avoid having with God. To be able to have permission to have the difficult conversations that you and I need to have with God. Today we're going to be talking about getting honest with God about our own human nature. Do you know what a meme is? I had to, a couple of years ago, my, my children had to explain to me just what a meme is. Now, a meme is, is, is a piece of pop um, you know, consciousness or whatever. It's, it's sort of like an image or something that, that gets passed around. Uh, often it's posterized. It's some kind of a saying or something that has gone viral. All right, I'm going to give you a little meme this morning. Now, you have to sort of, you have to picture yourself standing with a mechanic and your car is there up on the, you know, the blocks or whatever. And, and usually, you know, people who are trying to create a meme, they'll say, that moment when, right? You've seen this, right? That moment when, right? And so they're adding this, this saying to this image. So you got the image, right? So the image is you're standing there with a mechanic and your car has just been, you know, examined. And it says, that moment when you're wondering whether this is going to be a night on the town or cost you a couple of house payments, right? You've been there, right? You're in that moment when you're thinking, is this going to cost me a good dinner or a couple of house payments? And a lot of times we hear that little noise in the, in the car and we're thinking, that's eh, nothing. I'm sure it's nothing, right? <laughs> and you put it off. Because you don't want to deal with it. You deny it. You, you pretend it away. We do this, right? We do this. You do this. I do this. But isn't it better, even at the cost of a couple of house payments, to find out what's going on and what's gone wrong when you're there with a mechanic then on the way up I-75 in the middle of the rain, right? This is a good thing, right? So, so dealing with what's really going on, dealing with what's really real, having the conversation, permission to speak freely. But we do deny, we suppress, we, we pretend things away. We try to anyway. And we get good at it. In fact, there are there, there are uh, half-truths that we tell ourselves. Uh, and, and they have to do not with human nature, but they tend to go towards human nurture. And so we make excuses, half-truths. And so let me give you just a, a few half-truths that we tell ourselves in order to avoid dealing with the full truth of human nature, human nurture. One is just to say, I'm okay, I'm okay, you're okay, right? I'm okay, you're okay. That was a book in the 70s. I'm okay, you're okay. It's fine. Everything's good, right? And, it, and the whole self-esteem movement was born 
you know, the, the participation trophies and Al Franken, you know, some of you are old enough to remember Al Franken on Saturday Night Live looking in the mirror saying, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me, right? And he's almost in tears trying to convince himself. Because it's, 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 not, it's not that we want to be better, we just want to feel better. How has feeling better helped us in terms of getting better? You know, people, people say that there, there have been surveys about how people have felt, you know, compared to, uh, you know, 1940 and to now. And people feel a lot better. But has that made us better? Or you can compare culture to culture. And the way that people are, are disciplined, the way people are, treat each other, you can, you can look at cultures where self-esteem is not a thing. And sometimes they behave a lot better. And they're... Their society is a lot more orderly than, than ours. So feeling better doesn't necessarily make us better. Right? Second half truth is we blame somebody else. And that gives us some relief, right? Again, it's about feeling better. But it doesn't help us take responsibility. It doesn't help us get better. So we pursue self-esteem. We discharge the feelings that we have of shame by blaming somebody else. And third, we think, well, maybe it's just education. Maybe I just need more information. Maybe I need better education. Maybe our kids just need better education, and they'll get better then. It's about education. Well, you know, I've pointed this out a time or two. The Germans were the most educated people in the world during Nazi fascism. Education doesn't necessarily do it. These are half-truths. It's, it's important to feel good. It's important to be educated. It's important to, to, to deal with, with your own feelings. Feelings are not I'm, not, I'm not discounting them, but they don't make us better. In fact, there, there are whole philosophies that have, have been borne out. Rousseau and Hobbes have been contrasted over the, uh, over the, over the, the, the last hundred years or so as encapsulating two different schools of thought. One is that we're basically born evil, right? And we learn to get better. Uh, or Rousseau, Rousseau, a French philosopher, who said, no, we're, we're basically born good, and we mess, we mess our kids up, right? Our institutions mess us up. And so we, again, that's a blame-shifting thing. You know, how is an institution made by people born good going to mess us up? See, that's a total contradiction. The truth is somewhere in the middle of this. It's, it's to say that, that we're, we're made in the image and nature of God, but we are, we're fallen. There's, there's something in our nature that isn't quite right, and we know it. It doesn't take a whole lot of convincing. But what happens is we, we don't fully deal with it. We kind of put it aside. We, we tell ourselves these half-truths. But it's important to deal with this elephant in the room. It's important to deal fully with it. It's important to give ourselves permission to speak freely with God about the things that are broken in us and around us. Why is it good to be imperfect? Let's take that question into Luke chapter 7. Open your Bibles, if you will, if you brought them, or uh, look at the screens. I encourage you to bring your Bibles. Again, I want to encourage you to bring a an ESV, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Luke 7, 
the story of the centurion and his servant. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he, Jesus, entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my, my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you that not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. May God bless us today through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When is it good to be bad? When is it good to just lean into your imperfections? When is it good to own up to the fact that you're broken? You know, we, we avoid it. We feel bad. And sometimes there, there, there are churches and some of the most popular churches in the United States. That was my pause of temptation to name some. I didn't do it. I passed. There are some churches that really don't want to talk about what we're about to talk about. It makes us uncomfortable. We, we, it makes us feel bad. But there are times when it is important for us to deal with the fact that we are imperfect so that we can embrace the good. To be imperfect is to make room for the good. Let's take a look at, at, at just three quick ways that, that the centurion does that very thing. He gets his imperfect self out of the way so that he can embrace the good. Yeah, imperfect people see striving. Imperfect people find a foothold. And imperfect people are increasingly open to the good. All right, so first, imperfect people cease striving to be perfect. It is an oppressive thing to strive after perfection, but we do it. We do it. We want to present a wrinkle-free life. We want at least everybody to look uh, at us and see a reputation, even if our character is, is foul, right? Or for those of us who, who've been... Uh, 
who have at least made some progress in the Christian life, we think that it's up to us at a certain point, and we start striving again after perfection. And somehow we begin to embrace the idea of this meritocracy as part of our faith. It's a little like this if, you, if you've ever seen a house jacked up that has a foundation problem. Imagine jacking that house up, all right? It's a big process. It's, it's pretty intense. And then the foreman coming and saying, all right, let's just let's add some sand under there. Let's just pour some sand in. That's what our striving after perfection is like. It's like, let me just get a little bit more sand under my feet. A little bit more sand, a little bit more sand. You know what's like running in sand? What it feels like running in sand? Versus running on the pavement? This is what our striving for perfection does for us. It just adds a little bit more sand and a little bit more sand. What, what the centurion is recognizing is that that's just not going to cut it. A little bit more sand isn't going to help. The, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders, the elders in this area of Capernaum, they are putting before Jesus the argument that this man is worthy of Jesus' attention because of the things he's done. They are they're bringing an argument on the basis of meritocracy. Right? Meritocracies have brought us amazing things in our culture. But they can only go so far in terms of the peace of the human soul and the ability for us actually to get better. But the centurion does not approach Jesus on that basis of merit. He doesn't approach Jesus on the basis of all the sand under his feet. He says the opposite of what the elders have said. He says, I am unworthy even to have you come under my roof. I'm, he understands at least enough. This is a Greek. This is a centurion. He's, he reports to the generals, and the generals report to Caesar. And so he's a man uh, with authority. And, and, and he understands that his culture occupying their culture the Greek culture occupying Jewish culture, he understands enough. He studied their religion to know that if Jesus came under, if a rabbi came under his roof, he would have to go through a lengthy process of ritual cleansing. And he understands that he is unworthy to have this man in his house. He has great respect for this. But not only that, he understands something that the elders of the synagogue themselves don't understand. And so the, the centurion is appealing to Jesus on the basis of something other than his merit. And he's saying, is that okay? And Jesus is saying, yes, you get it. You get it like no one else I've seen up to this point. You understand what makes things different. Imagine, let's, let's get practical here for a minute. How many times were you defensive this week? How many times will you be defensive in the coming week? So many opportunities for us to defend ourselves. So many opportunities when people say something, even small, something small, and we, 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 we rush in there with words, right? Isn't that exhausting? Of course it is. 
They keep pouring sand and pouring sand and trying to convince people, even some small suggestion that we didn't get it just right. And we rush in there with our excuses. Wouldn't it be marvelous to be free from that? And Jesus is saying, I want that for you. I want that for you. But you have to get imperfect out of the way so that the good can be your footing for your foundation. Second, imperfect people find that foothold. They find it. They find the foundation. They find the solid rock. They set aside all of this piling up and pouring in of sand, of merit, and they find a foothold, and it makes all the difference. And let's, let's, let's think about that for a minute. What does it mean to have a foothold? Exactly what does it mean? Jesus is pointing to the centurion's faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? Let me tell you a quick story. In my backyard when I was you know, five, six years old, my dad had built this jungle gym. And it was pretty tall. And right in the middle of it was this pole that you could slide down. But I wanted to do a little experiment. So I took a, an umbrella. And I had faith in this umbrella. It was big. It was a big umbrella. And I really believed I still remember this. I really believe, because I saw this happen on TV, right? This is that whole thing of don't try this at home, right? I tried it at home, people. I took this huge umbrella, and I was on top of the jungle gym, and I, I honestly, I was a true believer. I opened that umbrella, and I jumped, thinking that I was going to float down slowly, right? And as a result, my legs were not prepared for... <laughs> for the landing, right? They were just a couple of wet noodles, right? It was a bad situation after that, a really bad situation. Meanwhile, my friend, I think he ended up going to Harvard. My friend was smart. He decided to slide down the, uh, the pole. He was nervous sliding down the pole. He'd never slid down the pole before. He was he was, he was quaking about, but this was a big deal to slide down this pole, and I was showing off the umbrella. And I, but I had great faith. I had total confidence, and he was nervous. His faith was placed in a pole, a solid object. My faith was in the umbrella. You know, in this day and age, you hear people just say, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, just believe and believe sincerely. Have, and, and a lot of times, Christians even say this. They'll say, you know, if you just had a little bit more faith, then, then maybe, or they imply that the reason why that thing didn't turn around is because your faith wasn't strong enough or you didn't pray the right prayer. It's an abusive thing to tell somebody. And not only that, it's wrong. You see, the centurion has faith. He has faith. He doesn't get it quite right, though, does he? He says, Jesus, well, he says through his, the people he sends, through his emissaries, he says, he says I, am, I, I am like you. I, I have people coming and going under me. I'm a man under authority, but I also have authority. What he's saying is, Jesus, you seem to have some pull with God. You seem to have some pull with God. So I'm approaching you, and I have faith in you that you're going to deliver. Now, that's not quite right, is it? But his faith is in the right object, isn't it? 
His faith is in the right object. Like my friend who decided to go down the pole, right? That was smart. His faith was in the right object. But I had great faith, much better faith, much stronger faith than he had. But my faith was in the wrong object. You see, what the centurion is showing us is that people who are willing to set aside their imperfections, they're willing to not, not set aside their imperfections, but their perfections, and embrace the fact that they are imperfect. They make room for the good. They begin to, to turn their faith towards something other than themselves. And that makes all the difference. It, it is a, a step of faith, though. It does take some kind of step of faith. You have to trust that there's going to be some kind of response that God is going to enter in. You're making room for God to do his thing in your life. You're no longer constantly striving to show the world what you want them to see. David Foster Wallace uh, died a few years ago. He's a scholar, a writer, um, kind of in some people's minds in academic circles, uh, is the voice of, of millennials in some ways. Uh, he has a huge following. He wrote a book called Infinite Jest. He was uh, an agnostic. But the reason why I bring him up is I love to point out to you that sometimes people get it a little bit right who are going in the wrong direction. This is what David Foster Wallace says. In the day-to-day -day trenches of life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no, thing, no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we know this stuff already. He gets it partially right, just like the centurion gets it partly right. Everyone worships. Everyone has some kind of foundation. What is the object of your faith? You see, imperfect people, they find a foothold. And finally this, imperfect people are increasingly open to the good. Imperfect people are increasingly open to the good. The centurion, he doesn't even let Jesus into his house. The centurion doesn't even meet Jesus himself. The centurion sends someone to be an intermediary to talk to him. And yet, Jesus praises his faith. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what would happen in, and probably did happen in the coming weeks when he heard what Jesus said about him? Can you imagine how, how much confidence he would have? And then also, not only that, but to see that the object of his faith produced that kind of result. What kind of result are you getting? 
What kind of result are you getting within you? Is your faith in the right object? Are you still striving and trying to make life work for you apart from God? Of course you are. So am I. We're all somewhere between zero and 100%. But, but when we are willing to say, look, I don't have it all figured out. And I don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. And I don't have to be Mr. Right, Mrs. Right in every conversation. And yet some of our Bible studies are sort of, I, I'm, I'm hearing, I get reports back about how sometimes some of, our, some of the Bible studies around here, it's almost like the right, in, right answer Christianity. Like we get together to tell each other the right answer. How much more then would it, would it work on your faith? How much more than to name the elephant? How much more than to say, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. And you know what? I don't have this thing that I know that I need to do. I don't have that all the way perfect. And be very careful about this right answer Christianity because I think it's going to keep you right where you are. It's going to keep you from growing. It's going to keep you from having uh, a greater sense of confidence and peace. It's okay to be imperfect. That's what brought you to Christ originally. In fact, it's the very thing that, that, that Jesus calls us to do. Grace isn't against people who are imperfect. Grace is against people who think they're not imperfect. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make a whole lot of sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. You know, I think a lot of times we think that we're trying to get something right for three score years and ten for the 70 to 80, 90 years that we live on this earth. You're a creature creating the image and nature of God created for eternity. He's building something in you so that you will be able to be responsive within this trinity this eternal, loving relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, invited into that place to be responsive to it is to be somebody who's setting the perfect aside that the good may come. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for the work that you've started within each one of us. And we thank you that you're faithful to complete it the day of Christ. God, would you help us to know where we're to withhold our hand and let you be the author and perfecter of our faith so that the things that we do, Lord, will build on a foundation. The effort that we put in will be graceful, grace-filled effort, not to do the things that you're called to do within us, but to respond to what you've already done, what you've promised 
is complete. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.